great to be back. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed both, <clears throat> both times I've come. It's been good to be here with you all. Um, it's hard to go after Tim Keller. Uh, <laughs> so I think we should see this as kind of, I, I'm friends with Dr. David Cho, and he, he reached out to me and, and asked me to share a testimony. So this is kind of maybe some illustrations of what some of the things Dr. Keller is talking about. Um, I'm not an expert in justice work, uh, but I, I just want to share a few ways that I have seen and experienced the work of justice and a little bit of what I've learned about it, um, and I hope that God may use it for, for some good. Uh, so I first want to just reflect a little bit on what Tim Keller shared. It's such a beautiful picture, right, of, of what uh, as Christians we're kind of called to do. He says that um, shalom or peace means total flourishing in absolutely every dimension, the way things ought to be. And he says that justice is pursue, pursuing shalom. I love the, the image he gave us of, of a fabric, right? And, and justice work is reweaving that fabric, fostering right relationships with each other, with the world, and with God. And it's, it, it's, justice work is bringing the restoration achieved through Christ to bear on the world. And that's just, it's a beautiful task. It's a beautiful thing we get to do. But at the same time, the bar for this justice work is really high, as Keller noted, right? He talked about Matthew 25 when he says that, when Jesus says that nothing less than our eternal destiny is at play with this, right? It rides on our, our, our participation, our pursuit of justice. He, he, he kind of paraphrases Jesus, and he says that basically Jesus says, if you don't love the poor, you don't love me. Why did he have to say love? Couldn't he have said, like, pity? Or maybe, like, you know, every now and then buy a burger for the poor? Or maybe you donate some used clothing to the poor? But, you know, he said love the poor. That's a lot harder. A lot harder. The bar for justice is is high. And at the same time, it's really urgent. I mean, as we look around, close to home, across the country, around the world, the amount of injustice is almost blinding. It's all over. Right? The, this, the fabric of the world has been torn apart in countless ways. Family strife, right? a country divided by by racial tension, by politics, economics, religion. And then if you look around the world, even right now, there's war, there's poverty, there's corruption, there's all sorts of things. So it can be, when we think about justice, it can be a bit overwhelming. How, where do we even start with this? Well, what, I, what I love about Tim Keller in this video and in his ministry in general is that he knows this. He, he knows the bar is high. I mean, he talked about it. He knows the need is urgent, and he knows that, honestly, most of us are seldom really actually up for the task. But he doesn't try to guilt us into doing it. He doesn't hold it over our heads and, and say, you better do this or you're going to hell or something like that. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He speaks to our hearts. And he shows us Jesus. And he says, look at Jesus. Jesus was, he, he, he served the poor. Jesus was poor. Jesus poured out his life 
and his love because of our poverty before God. Right? Jesus took on our poverty and gave us his riches. And that's motivation. And that's how we are empowered to do the work of justice, to seek justice. So with that as a backdrop, okay, that, that call to justice, that motivation for justice, and that empowerment that we get from Jesus, I just want to share two quick stories, um, one that I'm proud of and one that I'm not, um, of what justice can look like. So the first one is, about five years ago, I, I lived in with my wife and kids in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And one day, uh, with my brother-in-law and my kids on a this cold but sunny winter day, we're walking downtown, and a young man who clearly lives on the streets comes up to me and says, hey, can I have some money? And I say, I don't have any cash, but I'd be happy to buy you uh, some food. And he says, awesome, that's great, I'm, I'm vegan. And I said, okay. And I thought, wow, that's, it's got to be tough, honestly, being vegan and living on the streets. And I said, I don't know any vegan places, but and he's like, I do. So we walked a couple blocks, and I bought him a vegan sandwich, and we'll call my friend Curly. Um, and, and, and yeah, he ate his vegan sandwich. And before leaving, I said, hey, Curly, I'd love for you to come to my church. And he said, great, I'll be there. I didn't think anything of that. I, I, didn't, I thought that was the last time I'd ever see Curly. But on Sunday, he showed up to church. And for the next couple of months, he continued to come to church. And we kind of formed this relationship. He'd come to church. I'd give him a ride. Uh, sometimes when we cooked dinner, if it was vegan, I would text him and say, hey, would you like, like some? And so then, you know, if he said yes, I'd bring him the food. And then he'd try it and give me some recommendations about how to make it better next time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another person from church gave him a bike. Uh, another person from church bought him some soap and some other things that he needed. Um, he ended up coming to our community group that we hosted in our house. Uh, my kids got to know him a little bit, and, and they'd ask about him and how it was going. And it was really kind of beautiful until he disappeared. All of a sudden, out of the blue, after several months of this kind of forming, forming this relationship, he disappears. Stops responding to texts and calls, and I have no idea what happened to him. And I, after a month or so, I was talking with a friend, and I said, you know what, I bet he landed back in jail. That's got to be what happened, because what, what, what else could have happened? So we Google and find out, yep, he is back in jail. So about a month later, after I finally made some time, I said, you know, I should go visit Curly. So I went and, and, and uh, went to the jail, and um, he was surprised that he had a visitor, and we chatted for about an hour, and I said, asked, asked him if he'd like me to visit again, and, and then, yeah, and then I left. You know what? I never visited him again. I never saw him again since then. And this, this, that's kind of the end of the Curly story. It, sounds, it may sound like, like a success in some ways, uh, and, and I'm sure there, there were some good things that came of this. But as I look back on this story, honestly, I look back with a, a bit of shame. And let me tell you why. During these three to four months of relationship, the whole time as I'm interacting with him, I had an agenda. I knew what he needed. 
I needed to help him get a job and get off the streets. That's what had needed to happen. So I'd ask him all the time about his job search and followed up on an opportunity that he had. And, uh, you know, my kids asked him when they saw him, do you have a job? How's it going? Why? Because they heard me talking about that. The whole time, it was my agenda on what he needed and how I could help him get to what he needed. Because of that, the second thing, the reason I look back and am disappointed, is that I, I didn't listen to him. I didn't see him, Curly. Because if I had paid attention, if I had listened, then I would have realized, I would have known that he, he had no interest in getting a job and getting off the streets. Right? I, I, would, I would have realized. I mean, he, he even said so that, that and upon reflection later, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I would have realized that his needs were actually different than what I thought they were. He wasn't on the streets because he had had a hard time financially. He'd lost a job or something and ran out of money and landed on the streets. He was, he, he was there because his dad abandoned him. And then his grandfather kicked him out because of behavior issues. There was a series of relational breakdowns for, I'm sure, a lot of underlying reasons. But finances weren't the problem. But my commitment to my plan for him made me miss him as a person. And as a result, I failed to love him well. And I think, ironically enough, throughout the time that I spent with Curly, I think he actually ended up helping me more than I ended up helping him. He taught me some valuable lessons about listening and loving without an agenda. I want to tell you one other brief story. This time, it's about a church. Uh, it's about a church where the pursuit of justice did bear some fruit. So the last time I was here, I, uh, I mentioned that I grew up in Lima, Peru. I, I, my parents were missionaries there, and I, so I grew up there, um, and I'm a dual citizen, and after I did my undergrad in the U.S., I moved back to Peru and, and lived there. And for the, for the last several years that we lived there, um, my family attended a small church plant in a very poor neighborhood in Lima. In this neighborhood, there was a ton of petty crime. There's a lot of alcoholism. Um, there is a lot of issues with youth. A lot of the youth end up in gangs and other types of, of criminality. So this, if this community were a fabric, as Tim Keller mentioned, if, if this community were a fabric, there would be holes everywhere. Okay? It's not a place of flourishing, not a place of shalom. So the last year that I, I lived in Peru, uh, this is 2013, 2012, 2013, my wife and I lived in this neighborhood. In a, in a third floor apartment on the main street. And every day in the evening, this, this main street fills up with traffic. And very often when this happens, once it's dark, a group of four or five young men will come out and they will terrorize the traffic. They, will, they would uh, use a spark plug to break windows of the cars that have stopped. And they'd steal purses, backpacks, cell phones. Um, and then run off. 
And so I saw this from my front door, like every week, basically. And I would get so mad, so mad when I'd see this. So sometimes I'd call the police, and you know, after half an hour or whatever, they'd show up. By then, the, the kids are, are long gone, and nothing changes. One time I was so mad, I came out of my apartment and grabbed some stones that were, were there. And I chucked them as hard as I could from my third floor apartment at these 17 or 18-year-olds. Thank God I missed. But what a way to pursue justice, right? This is the context of this little church called Esperanza Viva, Living Hope Church. This is the context that we existed in. And I just want to tell you a few small things that this church did to be a presence of justice and love and compassion in this neighborhood. The first thing is, is we just serve the community. The church served the community with small things. So this neighborhood is built around a few parks. When I say park, don't imagine an Illinois park, okay? Lima is a desert. There's a lot of dust and dirt everywhere. So a park is a concrete soccer court with some dusty sidewalks, maybe a few patches of very yellow and very parched grass, and trees that are somehow hanging on, probably due to like when they come in and water them, they just flood them for like a while, and then they get, that's enough water for a week, and they survive. But that's what a park is. It's, it's small, not much bigger than maybe this area here, and it, this is the center where people will come and play soccer together and, 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 um, and be together. But importantly, in these parks, there are no garbage cans because whenever the municipality would come and install them, they'll very quickly be stolen. So there's no garbage cans. So as a church, the church for a while, every year, would come and do a park cleanup. Just pick up garbage. Repaint the lines on the soccer court and, and repaint the, 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 the soccer goals. And try to make the park look nice. It's a place of, of gathering for the community. And the church was part of the community and would try to beautify that area. Another thing the church did is to try to care for local elderly people. In Peru, there are no retirement communities that I know of. And the people that live in this community, in this neighborhood anyways, would, there's no way that they would be able to afford a retirement community. So there was some elderly people around, and the church tried to kind of adopt them. There was one woman named Porfiria who was in a wheelchair. And her family didn't really care for her too well. And so someone from church, every Sunday in the morning and then after church, would walk to her house and then push her on her wheelchair to church and back. And during the week, they'd check up on her, see how things are going and, and help in different ways, buying a new wheelchair or caring for her with food or things like that. And the goal was really simple. It was to just love and care for this elderly woman. Finally, one other way this church pursued justice. The church formed a, a long-term partnership with another church in Wisconsin. And every year for seven years, this church in Wisconsin would send a medical mission team to Peru. The first three years, we'd do this, like a pop-up medical clinic in the neighborhood. And in the next four years, the team from Wisconsin would come 
And then from this church, a team would, go, would, would uh, come as well. And together, we'd travel three hours south to a city and do a pop-up medical, medical clinic. Uh, and in this medical clinic, we'd serve in a week like 1,000 patients. Um, in Peru, the, the healthcare system is, is not equipped to, to, uh, to deal with all of the need. There's just not enough doctors, not enough hospitals. So people end up living, unless you have private insurance, which most people don't, people end up living with very treatable things for a long time. So the, so the medical clinic was a way to just help relieve some of the suffering that people were experiencing. A way to try to help people that were not physically flourishing to regain a little bit of that flourishing. So that there were doctors that would come and, and see different things, dealing with parasites or cataracts or, or things that can be treated but weren't being treated. Um, and as part of this medical clinic, medical clinic, there would also be a pharmacy, so they would, people would be able to leave with some medicine to care for their needs, and also a spiritual clinic where everyone that would come through would also hear the good news of Jesus. And the response from these medical clinics was pretty amazing. Um, the need is, is so overwhelming that we only scratched the surface, but people were super, super thankful, right? Because some of the, they experienced some relief from some of the suffering that they were experiencing. So there's a few ways that this church, this small church, served its community. Now let me just first be clear that this small church, much smaller than this church, uh, Remain small. <laughs> okay? We did not convert the entire neighborhood. Systemic injustice was not defeated. Right? Uh, there was still lots of poverty, still lots of uh, issues in the community like domestic abuse and alcoholism. But that church was able to be a presence of reconciliation in the community. Right? People would come and they would go to the pastor seeking prayer and support people that were not connected with the church even. Many of the women who, whose husbands were alcoholics, they found a community, a place where they could gain a family and be loved. Some of the men that were, uh, that were alcoholics uh, came, became part of the church as well and, and were able to defeat that, that uh, alcoholism. So the church and the pastor in, in that area we're able to be part of this community as a presence of reconciliation and, and a, a good for the community. So these, these different experiences I, uh, have contributed in my life to, to, to kind of some of the things that I've learned about justice. And I'll just conclude by highlighting a couple of things uh, that I've learned over the past several decades of, of ministry. The first one is that pursuing justice is often not flashy. It's often not flashy, right? There are some amazing nonprofits that do powerful work in the world. And it sounds like this church has some opportunities to partner with some of those nonprofits. That's awesome. Um, and, and I encourage you all to really consider doing that. There's the need for caring for refugees in, in, in the U.S. is massive. And this is a great opportunity. Um, but the, the reality is that ma the majority of us are not going to lead nonprofits and change the world and provide water for, for the whole world or something like that or defeat world hunger. 
It's often not flashy for us. We get to pursue justice with small things, like listening with love rather than with an agenda, by cleaning up a park or caring for elderly people. Right? We get to be a beacon of justice by being a presence of restoration in our community. The second thing is that pursuing justice is slow. I'm an impatient person, and I really like to see results. But that's seldom how it works, especially with issues of justice. At, at the church in Peru, we saw more fruit from our long-term seven-year partnership and, and the little things that went on for a long period of time than any one-off evangelistic campaign or one-off flashy thing that we did. It was faithful persistence, long-term reweaving of fabric, little by little. That's what goes a long way. And the last thing is that pursuing justice is God's work. Pursuing justice is God's work. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah shares the hope of his nation for the coming king. And ultimately, Jesus fulfills this hope. But this is what verses 6 and 7 say. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the, great men, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So as much as we want to pursue justice, as much as we see the need God wants it more. God sees it more. It's ultimately his work that we get to partner in. It's God's work, and he will accomplish it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the encouragement that we receive from, from it, um, from the, chal the challenge as well, Lord. Thank you for the ministry of uh, Pastor Tim Keller uh, and the challenge that he's given us today to reweave the fabric of this world to participate with your work of justice. We pray that we would do so out of just the overflow of love that we received from you. Pray this in your name. Amen.